ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. It's been a busy week on the news front. Once again, the whole week wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche is here to help you make sense of it all. Here's what we're chatting about today. It's a biggie. The National Health Insurance Bill was approved and very few are celebrating. Surgical gloves, buckets to clean hospitals and syringes, injections, the state paying multiples of the costs, the pure costs of those items. And that is going to be the story of the NHI. Then the Russian dilemma continues. Could South Africa lose more than the AGOA and BRICS summits? And an unbelievable story as four children survived 40 days in the Amazon jungle. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of the Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. I'm your host, Lizanne Janse von Rensburg. And with me today is Daily Maverick's associate editor, Ferial Hafiji. Ferial, how are you this week? Good. It's lovely to be with you. And congratulations on last Sunday's show. Um, we were quite riveted by it. Thank you so much. It was quite a powerful show. Um, so, really? yeah, thank you very, very much. So let's get straight into our first story. And I mean, this is a big one, and it's the National health insurance bill that was recently approved by the National Assembly. It was pushed through thanks to the support from several small parties that hold only a handful of seats. And then opposition parties and healthcare bodies have voiced their concerns for a number of years already, saying the bill facilitates government overreach. It could lead to gross corruption. And then there's, of course, the question around overall readiness at existing yes. healthcare facilities. I mean, they're barely coping already. So are we as doomed as many would lead us to believe? Well, I'd like to step back a little bit and just say that I'm sure all of us would like a working public health system because mm. we spend far, far too much on, on medical aid and the systems of medical aid. As you can see, if you don't even dig very deep into social media, they're opaque, not very accountable, and they do. there's huge profit taking there. So we are paying far too much. So imagine a public health system that works well, funded by our very very extensive tax uh, tax bills. That would be great. Um, a Scandinavian tax operation, even if you look closer to home, Rwanda has a good system in place mm. and other developing countries have done so too. Unfortunately, that's not our world. Not sure about you, but I would not send my mom, who is 93 years old, to a public hospital because I'm not sure she'll come out alive. It's absolutely that, that grave. And I think that is what has panicked South Africans who do and are forced to have medical aid about the decision to ram through the NHI in the face of a public health system, which often is collapsing as carte blanche often shows to us and the Daily Maverick does on an almost daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you've touched on the medical aid aspect. And um, yes. I mean, with, with over 80% of South Africans relying on public health care, I mean, there's no denying that we do need to address the many failings with the healthcare sector. But I mean, is a, a national health insurance bill 
really the answer um, at this early stage? So, so I'd say that obviously it's a massive inequity and probably the numbers of people who rely on private medical aid are higher because lots of people are paying cash or they're using these new generation like hospital schemes, you know, where mm. you can buy vouchers to go to the private system because the public system is so poor, uncaring. And in many cases, because of course there are laudable examples where that's not the case, um, people are choosing to to go into the private system. So for me, unless our government doesn't first address the manifest failings of the public system, this piece of legislation is undoubtedly going to end up in the constitutional court. And I think it's a long, long way from being implemented in its present form. Um, I have to tell you, there was a time where I was doing deep research on the NHI just before COVID. So the, the research I was planning kind of got overtaken. Um, mm. I met with Nicholas the doctor who's pushing it really hard. And obviously, my first question to him was, so, Dr. Crisp, where do you get your medical your medical care from for you and your family? Because I thought it's an obvious, you know, much of mm. our government uses the private system. And Nicholas said to me that he takes his health care on a principled basis from the public system. Then he went on to send me many, many examples of what he believes to be working clinics, working hospitals, working district systems. But that truly is the minority part of the story. I'm glad you also touched a bit on CRISP because I was watching a story that we aired in 2019. I was watching that again yesterday. And he actually also detailed quite a lot why the NHI could be beneficial if you look at it purely from a almost a utopian perspective in a way where he explained you know the itemized billing the fact that if you go to the dentist they charge you for the tools they charge you for this they charge you for that where under NHI it will be treated as one whole treatment so the cost saving elements are there um, I mean we can't deny that the the idea is pure but whether it's executable in South Africa is a whole different matter. God, no, it's not executable, not by Mm. this rapacious and greedy state. If you look at the NHI bill, its governance structure tells you where the problem is. I don't know if it's been substantially changed, but the last one I checked is that the entire NHI is governed by the minister with a hand-picked board. Mm. Now, we we have seen multiple examples of how such systems can be captured. Take, for example, the News 24 excellent series on the Hitan Babita de Okaran in the Department yes. of Health in Gauteng. What Jeff Wicks has shown us is how a procurement system has been completely commandeered by a provincial capture networks and costs loaded so much. So, for example, surgical gloves, buckets to clean hospitals, and syringes, injections, the state paying multiples of the costs, the pure costs of those items. And that is going to be the story of the NHI in its present form. There's simply no ways that it's either constitutional or practical in a captured state. Mm. And and I think it's important just for now to emphasize that, you know, this will obviously take several years for the NHI transition to happen. I mean, someone mentioned earlier this week, you know, if you look at Japan, it took them 34 years to get it up and running. So, I mean, we still have a way to go, but what's next in terms of the more immediate timeline? You mentioned a little bit that it will go to the constitutional court. So that's probably the next step that opposition parties will take. It takes years to get to a 
constitutional uh, mm. courts. Before the president signs it, I think that you'll have notable objections from political parties, from industry bodies. Then it'll be subject in the character of our president to further negotiations, task teams, etc. So the NHI in its present form is a long, long way from being implemented. Plus, we're headed into a government, undoubtedly, of coalition in the next election. I'd eat my hat if we aren't, although the ANC says that it's still slightly above majority. But I do think this is a long way from being implemented. And the sad thing for me is, while you get caught up in this debate about whether we should have an NHI or not, I hope we don't lose sight of our work in the actual hospitals, because I thought that the former ombudsman Malekhapura Mahoba had left us as South Africans with a real challenge to keep our civil society eyes alive on each hospital. He, of course, was writing his final report on the, on the Rahima Musa Hospital, but I think that's the exact same story at all our hospitals. Helen mm. Joseph, which I follow quite regularly, was without water for a lot of the winter months because of system problems. So mm. for me, that's where the real challenge of reporting lies. Yeah, absolutely. Another week, another Russian dilemma. This time in the form of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, or AGOA. Could the United States refuse to extend this sweet deal in 2025 should we, according to them, fail to pick a side in the ongoing Ukraine war. Meanwhile, government weighs up the pros and cons of hosting the BRICS summit in August. So onto a topic we've chatted about quite a lot on the whole week wrap, and that's South Africa's stance on Russia, or as they say, non-stance. Yeah. <laughs> now, there have been quite a few developments in the past week or so from the US, as we see them tightening the screws on the South African government from US lawmakers warning that South Africa could lose its benefits under the African Growth and Opportunity Act, or AGOA, calls for the scrapping of the planned AGOA summit set to be held in South Africa later this year. What's your take on these growing threats from the US? You know, I've been um, covering Covering AGOA for, for decades, to be honest, from the financial mail onwards, it really is a, a peach of a trade deal. You know, unlike the, the fraught negotiations with the European Union, this was a, a make good by the US. It was almost a, um, a gift to the new South Africa. It's highly preferential trade and it's worth many, many billions of rands. Its um, percentage of exports is only 8%, but it's value to farm workers, to farmers to entire industrial sectors is enormous. So we can't try and diminish or reduce the importance of what happened this week when um, senators, bipartisan senators, from both parties in the U.S. came together and wrote and said that South Africa should not host the AGOA Forum of 2023 because we are no longer a partner whom they hold in good stead. And that is because of three or four incidents about Russia, which they say showed South Africa is certainly not non-aligned insofar as its relationship with Russia goes. 
Mm. In the letter dated 9th of June that was released, yes. I mean, they, they went as far as saying that they were concerned that hosting the AGOA Forum in South Africa, and I quote, could serve as an implicit yeah. endorsement of South Africa's damaging support for Russia's yeah. invasion of Ukraine. So, I mean, this whole neutral facade that we have is yes. clearly no longer working. Absolutely not. I mean, I think it hasn't been working since the U.S. Ambassador uh, Ruben Brigetti um, said at that press conference that he believed the Lady R was carrying weapons. Obviously, that hasn't been proven, subject to a closed-door judicial commission of inquiry. But I think you can take it as given that, one, the AGO Forum is not going to be held in South Africa this year, and two, we're going to face uphill to get that trade deal with the U.S. reconfirmed in its present shape form. So what does that mean? It could mean really big things for our agricultural and other sectors because it, it likely will mean that the terms of trade will be made less preferential than they are at the moment. Because the way things stand at the moment, it's a very sweet deal. Mm. And speaking of summit, you know, being moved or potentially being moved, yes. um, we have to talk about BRICS as well, because that's creeping yes. ever closer. And uh, there's been a lot of mention of the BRICS summit being hosted in China to kind of sidestep the Putin arrest matter entirely. And China has essentially stated it's willing to host the summit if needed. Do you think local government will continue staying standing its ground and host the summit regardless? Or, or kind of what do you see happening with BRICS? I do think that at the moment, the, the balance of probabilities is that BRICS will move to China with some face saving for us as a co-host, but in, in a major capital, likely Shanghai, from what I've read. Deco Minister Naledi Pando is still saying that at the moment, the summit will continue in Johannesburg. And I think there are, I guess, Russia hawks, I'm not sure if that's the right word, who want South Africa to be the site of a conflagration. But on the other hand, I don't think Putin will come here because what you are likely to see is civil society going to court, activists on the runway, and South Africa being the scene of a major global focus as activists try and arrest Vladimir Putin. And I don't think that he would subject himself to such an imbroglio. So my money at the moment is on a hosting by China. I tend to agree with you on that because it would just be political suicide <laughs> to, yeah. to allow also, like, him here. Also, do we need that kind of thing here? I mean, it would be great for us as journalists. But as a country, do we need such a thing? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So I'm all for handing it over to China. Let them Absolutely. deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> On the 1st of May, a small six-seater plane crashed in a dense, uninhabited part of the Amazon jungle. Aboard the plane were three adults and four children. Only the children survived the crash. What followed was a grueling 40 days before the children were found alive. Having covered over 2,600 kilometers on foot, one rescuer compared the search to finding fleas in a massive carpet as the children continuously moved through the forest. We celebrate this story of survival that gripped people the world over. Now, today's green shoot is a little bit different because um, yes. we usually look at the local stuff, but I found this story and we're looking towards South America for this one. I don't know if you've been following this oh, story, God, but really? I've been... 
almost obsessing over it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's this remarkable story of four children aged between 11 months and 13 years who survived in the Amazon jungle for 40 days following a plane crash. I mean, it's astonishing, this whole story. I think it's a movie, you know, that's definitely going to be a movie, right? Mm. I was entranced by it when my husband first pointed it out to me at the weekend. And since then, I've been following largely on the BBC about how did they survive? What smarts had they learned on collecting fruit? How did they manage with seeing their mom, she was dead, in, in the plane? It, it's just the most phenomenal human story. Yeah, I think this is going to become the same as the, the cave story of the children who were stuck in that cave in several China. years ago. Yeah, so it's going to be a very, I think it, this is the next one that everyone's kind of going to latch onto. But I just found it amazing that, you know, the 13-year-old, she was taught by her mother because they're indigenous children. They were taught how to harvest these very specific seeds. And mm. and it was just the, the perfect time of year because they said that had it not been this specific time, time of year they wouldn't have had such a, a bountiful harvest of this specific fruit wow. um, so it's just it's such an astonishing and, and story found by following the fruit that they had started chewing yes. on just for me and and their little footprints mm. um, in the jungle is quite a story so. yeah so I think that's a very happy story to end today's show on. Thank you so much for chatting to me, Farrell. It's been lovely. And thanks for helping us make sense of NHI, because, I mean, I think a lot of people are a bit flummoxed by that one. Certainly. And also from all of us at the Daily Maverick to Derek White, lots of love and healing energy sent to him. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lizanne. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms. <laughs>